gas barrettes. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another privilege like this to gather together as your children, knowing you've adopted us, granting us faith in your precious Son, helping us turn from the world and from our self-reliance, but to turn to you wholeheartedly, asking for mercy and receiving it from your grace. Father, we ask for special prayers tonight for anyone in our congregation who is sick and struggling. Uh, you know who they are, and we ask that you let them know that we're with them in spirit and encourage them by your word and your spirit. And Father, most of all, we thank you for sending your Son to save us from the ultimate disease, the one that would be permanent without you interceding. We thank you for saving us from sin and death once for all by the unspeakable sacrifice of your Son. Father, we ask that you bless us right now. Help us to forget about the details of life. Help us concentrate on your word fully and listen to your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Okay, The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 63. So, um, as I mentioned in the opening there, Sunday's message was a big picture message, bringing several things into our view. Um, some big puzzle pieces fit together for me. Uh, hopefully you got that, that perspective and that view also. It may have revealed to you why things are the way they are. Just think about that as you think about Sunday's message and tonight's review. Hopefully it reveals to you something of why things are the way they are um, in Christianity as a whole, in our country. If you haven't listened or watched for some reason yet to Sunday's message, please do so. The Spirit helped us see why a certain attitude has come about in the Christian churches today, especially in America. Um, I can't say it's in uh, around the whole world, this attitude. Um, I'm sure it is in, in some countries, but I would say in other countries it's not. I think in America we have the problem of privilege, we have the problem of prosperity, and uh, we have the problem, well, we have a lot of problems now, nowadays. I mean, I could keep going. But we want to include everybody. We want to, we want to make sure um, everyone's invited, even when God says these are the terms for the dinner invitation. So there's a lot going on, but hopefully uh, God's fitting the pieces together for you to see the big picture, to see why our battle is the way it is, um, to see what, what fights we do need to pick and which ones we need to walk away from. So first of all, in our review from Sunday on the board regarding the God of all grace, there is 100% consistency with any and all Old and New Testament scripture. Our God is a God of grace, regardless of dispensation, administration, or economy. We are able to read our Bibles without being confused about who God is and why he initiates or responds the way he does. That last part of the phrase there is very important. I mean, 
you should, especially with the good teaching we receive here and the, and the, the balanced teaching we receive and the emphasis on reading our Bibles in context, you should be able to see much clearer now who God is and why he initiates and responds the way he does on a habitual basis, like on a, in a pattern. It's just we can even, I don't want to say predict, we don't want to get arrogant, but we shouldn't be surprised at the way he responds to certain things because we're getting to know him. We're getting to know his word and who he is as a person. So if something seems incongruent or out of place, it may be our past religious beliefs or influences that interrupt the flow of God's word in our souls. That's what we should think about when we get confused. Why am I confused right now? Is the word of God being too complex Or is it that some of my past beliefs are so ingrained in my soul that I am skewing the way I look at this? I'm not seeing this clearly like I should because these other things are interfering in the back of my mind. As we know in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. That's just who he is. He's not, uh, his objective is not to confuse us. He may challenge us at times, as we all need to examine our hearts, for example, but he's not a God of confusion. We were encouraged by our pastor on Sunday to make this conversation very personal, to look in the mirror, just, just, just at yourself, not at anybody else, not at your pastor, not at anybody else who you think, you know, needs help or isn't following the word or we get caught up on other people like that where God's like, you can only affect your own soul. You can only make decisions for your own soul. And he told us to look in the mirror and consider the fact, first of all, that God chose each of us personally, which is mind-blowing because obviously there's nothing good about any of us to deserve that. It was totally by his mercy. He reached out and saved us if we're believers. And then consider, because you know there's nothing good or worthy in you, consider that whatever is good or right about you, as you look in the mirror, whatever is good or right about you is a grace gift from him and nothing less than that. Look in the mirror, the Spirit said. See his work in you. See his sanctification of you as he promised. And don't take one ounce of credit for anything good. It's all from his unending grace and mercy, which is new and fresh every morning. Lamentations 3. I mean, who can measure God's mercy? How do you measure something infinite? Think about the fact that God, since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, thousands of years ago, has been patient with the human race every morning. How many mornings is that? Would you continue to be patient, is my point. Would you continue to be merciful to people that do the same thing over and over and over? Like the Old Testament we see with the Jews. Their constant rebellion, and God constantly took them back when they repented. How do you describe this mercy? I mean, we, 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 we're astonished of it in our own lives, right? We should be that every day he puts up with us, that every day he forgives us, that every day he has mercy fresh and new every morning. 
Why doesn't it run out? He's God. It's totally mind-blowing. But God wants us to consider this so that we appreciate Him more. And He also never leaves His work undone. He takes us disgusting creatures, fallen creatures, and says, I'm going to do some good in you. Don't you dare take credit. I'm 1 Corinthians 15.10, but I am what I am by the grace of God. That's got to be the mindset. It's that mindset that, that helps us enjoy life even because we're so grateful that God has been merciful again and again and again. So one of the themes on Sunday was, are you grateful for God choosing you? For Him sanctifying you even though you know the wretch that you are. You know where you came from. You know what you've done, what you've thought etc. Even about God. If we're grateful for Him choosing us, we realize the magnitude of His grace toward us. And it's then that we're motivated out of love to do as well. So like understanding grace and appreciating grace is directly linked to motivation. And we can have that joy to get up every morning because we're overwhelmed by His grace. That's what motivates us out of bed. And if not, uh, we need to pray and start thanking God for all the kindnesses He's shown us. So it's when we appreciate this grace that He even chose us to begin with, that our affections are rightly stirred up. And He showed such pure kindness to us and we set our minds, therefore, on His purposes and direction for our lives. Our affections are rightly stirred up when we look in the mirror and consider that anything good about us is by His grace. We should have been destroyed a long time ago. He should have stomped us out. You can use whatever analogy you want. He should have snuffed us out. <laughs> whatever. He should have just totally ignored us, judged us, not dealt with us. So now we want to live for Him when we consider the ridiculous extent of His mercy. So why did He choose you? I have no idea. I ask myself that all the time. And the more you ask yourself that, the, the, the more you're convinced that it has nothing to do with you. Maybe also as you grow older and wiser and you see your flesh more and things like that, you get more convinced that has nothing to do with you. And so you're even more astonished that He chose you. But I know I'm grateful because I know my own sins, I know my unworthiness, which makes me more and more thankful for His sheer kindness and mercy. And so the cycle goes, and you wake up more motivated. Not every morning, not perfectly, that's for sure, right? But you make, you generally speaking, wake up more motivated because you're more and more appreciative that He's even considered you. So this is another primary theme from the Old and New Testament, which came up on Sunday. The fact that people in the Bible who understand God's grace are completely blown away by it. Don't you see that as you read your Bible? 
the old and the new, you know, the, the praise that people um, um, throw on God, for lack of a better phrase, the praise that people just put out there like they, they have to uh, release themselves in gratitude because they're blown away by the grace of God. That's what we see throughout the whole Bible. When we start to really understand it, meaning God's grace, we start to pursue it all the more. And so we're on a really good cycle, a really good pattern. Right? The more grateful we are, the more we pursue Him. The more we pursue Him, the more we understand His grace and learn about more of His grace. And the more motivated we are. And God is leading us to drop any idea of self-sufficiency. That's, that's a big part of the sanctification process. You know, at, at salvation, we realized we couldn't save ourselves, right? So we dropped, we made a decision, if you will, with the help of the Spirit to drop self-sufficiency. I can't save myself. I'm going to rely on God. But then even as we grow after salvation, we, we, we rely on self. In different ways, maybe, different areas for different, each one of us. But God's leading us in sanctification to drop the idea of self-sufficiency. Totally. We never perfectly get there till heaven. But we can more and more get closer to him in that way. And in that way, God is leading us home. What, what is home? Before we're in heaven with him, what is home? It's a place of peace in our hearts that only he gives us. That's where he's leading us. And we only come to that place when we totally drop self-reliance and depend on him for all goodness in our lives. That's the place of peace. That's the place of joy Jesus said he wanted to share with us. But that begins with the appropriate response towards God's grace in our lives. One of this overwhelming gratitude, blown away by the ridiculous grace and mercy of God. So we've seen Psalm 84. I'm just going to give you a couple of verses here to kind of summarize this theme, this response of God's children to him when they understand his grace. Psalm 84, 1 and 2. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And you might not literally say these words you might not sing these words even in church but these are the words that we should be saying in our souls to him in our prayer in our moments of gratitude how lovely are your dwelling places in other words i'm so glad to be in your home in your place of peace in your son my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the lord my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living god all comes with appreciation of his grace and mercy. Again, on the board, the God of all grace, there is 100% consistency with any and all Old and New Testament scripture. Our God is a God of grace, regardless of dispensation, administration, or economy. We are able to read our Bibles without being confused about who God is and why he initiates or responds the way he does. Thank God for that. He certainly could have made it different than it is. But 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
And he wants us to have that peace. That place of peace. Which comes again from dropping self-reliance. So any confusion we may have had with recent messages, like Thursday nights, uh, some might say it was a tough one, a lot to absorb and take in. Any confusion we have results from our own sin natures having to cope with the lies that we've taken in over the years. From the world, from the flesh, from religion. So much embedded in our souls that deceives us. And therefore makes certain things seem complicated when they're not. Religion has deceived us deep in our souls in ways we don't even see. Don't think you're um, immune from that, regardless of your background. The flesh itself is religious. We all have some kind of system of religion in us. Only humble submission to the Lord and His Word can lead us out of the darkness that we're trapped in. That came out on Sunday as well. Only submission to the Lord and His Word can lead us out of whatever darkness we're trapped in. Whatever confusion, therefore, we have. Submission, humility is going to lead us out, is going to show us the bright light of Christ in all areas of our lives. Turn to John 10, verse 2. John 10, verse 2. The way out of the darkness is Jesus. It's Him, it's His gospel. And it's submission to him. John 10, 2, Jesus said, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Jesus, as we know, is the light. He is the truth. There's no other source of light. There's no other way to be set free from our own confusion, from our own bondages, even like self-reliance. Man's only part in the equation, as we've seen lately, is crying out for his wonderful mercy. That's man's only part. And even that comes from God in a supernatural way. Even that we can't take any credit for because somehow he instigates it in our soul. Somehow he brings it forth. This is really what the gospel of grace is all about, that man is wholly dependent upon the grace of God for everything. On the board, this is a summary point that came from Sunday. Uh, God saves. It is entirely up to God to save a person. Not sort of, not 99%. It is entirely up to God to save a person. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. If we're all born dead as we've heard over and over lately, dead in our trespasses and sins as in Ephesians 2.1, then a dead man can't even move himself towards God one iota. And by the way, man likes to think he can. Don't underestimate the flesh. Man likes to think he can. 
But the fact is we're dead. So if God doesn't do everything, nothing's going to happen. On the board, the only way a person is able to move towards God is if God enables said movement by grace. Amen? I mean, there's no other way a person can even move towards God. A lot of Christians take credit for their faith, directly or indirectly. But, you know, sometimes they'll even say it. It's all by grace, even the faith. That's what makes it such a wonderful mystery. As we well know from Holy Scripture, God gives grace to the humble. So we can conclude that God will draw the humble to himself. But a major part of Sunday's lesson was about the arrogant man. And the arrogant man is left standing on his own, even if he attempts to use the right words. Just think about that. That came out pretty strong on Sunday. The arrogant man is left standing on his own, even if he tries to use the right words. He might have the right words, but the wrong heart. If a man approaches God with an arrogant attitude, he's wasting his breath. God is looking at the heart, and he won't accept someone with an arrogant attitude. How much arrogance? Ask yourself, I don't know how many churches you've been in or seen or heard about, but how many arrogant hearts are there in the churches today in America? Boastful, prideful. I mean, we'll never know, and there are all sorts of churches out there that, you know, we can't, we can't say we know how all the churches operate. We can't. We just don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Every church is a little different. Every denomination is a little different. Every pass is a little different. There's so many, but it's a little bit scary to think about how arrogant and boastful some churches are. And it makes you wonder about salvation even. Because God makes war with the arrogant. God is the sovereign creator. And there's only one right and acceptable, acceptable way to approach him. And that is humility. There's no other acceptable way to approach him. I mean, we, people would do that with a human king on earth. How much more with the king of the universe? What would a human king do to someone who approaches him arrogantly, presumptively? <laughs> someone who goes right up to the throne and sits next to him. They're like, hey, how you doing? Let's make a deal. And the king says, off with your head. Right? Uh, uh, a person in the flesh with any wisdom at all would not approach that king arrogantly because he knows the consequences, right? So how is it that we approach God in that manner? Maybe it's because we don't see him. But he's given us all the evidence around us to be humble. That's the only, only proper way to approach him. Only acceptable way. So on the board, we talked about assuming God's power to save. The subtlety of the unrepentant, arrogant professor of faith is that the power to save has been shifted to the individual, away from our merciful creator. In other words, they are the ones calling all the shots 
or holding the cards. At least that's what they think. This is even taught from pulpits. Not all, but some. That, that the control is in your hands, people. You know, it's up to you. Instead of the emphasis being on the mercy of God and crying out to Him because of our utter helplessness. And the results of this kind of attitude, even a subtle attitude in the church, the results are a pseudo-faith that isn't able to follow Christ because it's not from God. It's from the flesh. There's a fleshly faith. How do we know that? Because some people claim to have faith and aren't saved, according to the Word of God. So what is that, that version of faith they have? Where does that come from? Obviously not from God, but from the flesh. So let's visit an example in Holy Scripture, which also reveals to us that all of His disciples are not necessarily believers. Turn to John six forty one. John 6.41, this passage um, includes John 6.44, which has been a main emphasis, that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him. But there's a lot more here that God wants to open up to us. And one of them is the fact that all disciples, when you see the word disciples in your New Testament, doesn't mean they're believers, believers are saved. We might, we might rightly always assume there's a mix in the churches, for example. We, we don't know who's there. But just because you see the word disciples does not, does not mean you assume they're saved, and therefore maybe this passage is for believers only. We'll get to that later. But look at John six forty one. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So there's another way to say it. Another way to say verse 44 in the end of verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, if you haven't heard from the Father, you're not coming to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now jump to verse 60. Verse 60. Here what we're seeing is some people that temporarily follow the Lord from a position of arrogance. 
And that's why it was temporary. It wasn't faith from God, faith from the Father. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? There's another recent emphasis from this pulpit that the gospel should make you stumble, that Jesus made people stumble to challenge their faith. Is your faith from the Father or is your faith from yourself? What's your source of faith? Why are you following me right now? Is basically what Jesus was saying. Why did Jesus give them these difficult sayings from verse 41 to 51 about him being the bread and you have to eat of his bread? You have to eat of him or you cannot live. Why did he give them these difficult sayings? Maybe to examine who their faith was from. So again, verse 61, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. An interesting, uh, what do you want to call it there? Contrast, right? It's the Spirit who gives life. The, f- the flesh profits nothing. Who's your faith from? The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Remember that for later on in our lesson. He's talking to the disciples and he says, There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. He said it again. Salah, right? Rest on that. He said it again. Nobody can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. And then in verse 66, it says some of them walked away. They wouldn't follow him any any longer, right? So what we see here is that only the Spirit can give eternal life. And that is the same Spirit of the Father in heaven who draws men to Christ. And they can't come without his drawing. They can't. No matter how bad they want to will it or force it. If they're arrogant, it's not going to happen. They're in the way of receiving God's mercy. So again, on the board, assuming God's power to save The subtlety of the unrepentant, arrogant professor of faith is that the power to save has been shifted to the individual away from our merciful creator. In other words, they are the ones calling all the shots, holding the cards, which is contrary to what Jesus said in John 6, both verse 44 and 65. And the results, again, are a pseudo-faith that isn't able to follow Christ. Just think about that. Why did they walk away? Because they didn't have the power in their own will to follow Christ in the flesh, in the power of the flesh, in the power of their arrogance. They couldn't do it. It doesn't last. It doesn't sustain because it's not of God. Arrogant people think they can demand mercy from God as though it's something they deserve in effect. If you think about it, they won't say they deserve it, you know, They might even be educated on the Bible and say, oh, yeah, 
saved by grace through faith, and they go to God with a presumptive attitude, an arrogant attitude, which in effect is them, them saying there's something deserving in them to receive it. Look at me, look at my faith the most. That kind of an attitude. And then you have a, a faith that comes from the flesh. There's a subtle attitude of I'm a good enough person. And they actually expect God to give mercy based on that. But that's not mercy at all. Mercy is given to the one that beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Two totally uh, opposite pictures. So arrogant people take credit in some sense. Therefore, they're not eligible for God's pure mercy to be granted to them. This person has positioned himself outside of God's grace plan, and he doesn't even realize it. He'll use the right words. He'll use the word grace, but he doesn't even realize it. That's what arrogance does. Arrogance makes us stupid. You could be the most intelligent person, IQ-wise, but arrogance makes you stupid. Just look at some of the atheists and the stuff that they profess. Only the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So on the board, mercy is a grace gift. It's not earned. It can't be demanded. It's a grace gift. Turn again to Romans 4, verse 4. It's kind of like if anyone presumes mercy or, you know, tries to uh, influence mercy, then it's not mercy anymore. Just think about that. Romans 4.4. 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Again, on the board, mercy is a grace gift. And we don't get to demand mercy from anyone, especially not from God. It makes no sense to demand mercy. <laughs> it's when a person or a preacher or a church tries to reduce God's sovereignty, that man gets arrogant like this. He presumes he has some power in the process of salvation when it's really scripturally wholly dependent upon God's sovereign mercy. Wholly dependent. And those are the words that man doesn't want to hear. The flesh doesn't want to hear. The believer in the churches don't want to hear that they're wholly dependent on God's mercy because they're dependent on their own goodness. At least some. At least some. And there's that boastful pride of life that we see even in the churches when we should be down on our knees and that should make us happy not sad you know crying out for mercy that should make us happy not sad because we're out of our own way we're not relying on self in any way when we do that and therefore we're at the place of peace God says as in Romans 9 we'll get to that again 
I'll have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. That's the sovereign God. And so the arrogant flesh hates to submit and realize it's totally at the mercy of God. 100%. And that's why the Spirit must intercede for us. As our dear pastor put it on Sunday, we'll call this uh, man's pride. It's offensive to human sensibilities that man is relegated to pleading for God's mercy in saving them. Isn't it offensive to your flesh? Doesn't your flesh hate, hate to hear that? That you need to, you know, plead for God's mercy or get on your knees or uh, cry out? Doesn't the flesh hate that? Oh, that's weakness. I don't want to appear weak. I don't want to feel weak. Maybe this is the American way getting in the way. I don't want to appear weak. I don't want to admit my weakness. It's offensive to human sensibilities that man is relegated to pleading for God's mercy and saving them. But that's what the Bible says. That's how a man comes to salvation, through humility. But man says, I have to get down on my knees? There must be another way. Let's compromise, God. I don't want to look bad in this situation. Isn't that our flesh, all of us? I don't want to look bad in this situation. I don't mind looking a little bit weak, but not totally weak. All these other people in church are looking at me, too. So uh, let's compromise. Let's work out an agreement. I'll get on one knee. How's that? God's like, no, 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 no. Are you willing to surrender yet? If not, you need to go through a little more suffering by my grace so that you cry out to the Lord and I can deliver you. There's only one way to salvation. And it's through his mercy, 100%. So it's just the horrible arrogance of the flesh that we're talking about. It's so horrible. It can't stand to admit it's totally depraved and incapable on its own. So it seeks a remedy, a fleshly idea to compromise with God as though man has a leg to stand on. And the problem is, the Bible says there's a certain definite result in the lives of those who deceive themselves like this, who think they're good with God without crying out to Him for mercy. They think they're good with God without humbling themselves before Him. And they're living in a fantasy land. They're literally living in a false reality, spiritually speaking. Many thinking they're saved when they're not because they refuse to cry out for mercy. Go to Matthew 7, verse 20. Matthew 7, 20. The arrogance of the flesh is so incredibly horrible beyond words. And the problem is it's so subtle. We don't even see it sometimes. And, and we're, all, we're all still arrogant until the day we die in some way. Thank God for mercy. So in this verse, Jesus himself said it as to remove any doubt in the minds of those trying to rationalize away the judgment that comes upon the arrogant. Matthew seven twenty. So then you will know them by their fruits. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are people who claim to have done the works of the Lord, but their hearts were bad. And in fact, as evidence of their bad hearts, Jesus says they practiced lawlessness. Remember 1 John 3? We just spent a whole week in 1 John chapter 3 as one of our main meals in this series. Same exact principle. Those who are children of the devil practice lawlessness. So it's not a surprise. That's the fruit of a bad heart, even though the lips are saying the right things. And Jesus is like, I never knew you. You never cried out to mercy. You never listened to my father's call. However you want to put it. Arrogance doesn't get saved. It just deceives itself until the day of judgment, unfortunately. But by the grace of God, some are saved. As the Spirit also pointed out on Sunday, again on man's pride on the board, the subtle error here is that man presumes to be in control of his own destiny, as though he's not wholly dependent upon God's mercy towards him as a sinner. It's very subtle. Like in the, in the minds of this arrogant person, they don't even think they're being arrogant, right? In the minds of many church-going believers who think their own goodness is somehow involved in getting God's mercy, they don't even think they're out of line. Again, the subtle error here is that man presumes to be in control of his own destiny as though he's not wholly dependent upon God's mercy towards him as a sinner. The Bible doesn't ever say man has control of his salvation. In fact, even the faith required to receive Christ, as we know, is a gift from God, just like repentance is granted by God alone. That means mercy. Again, no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws him. It's the Father's sovereign will in view, which trumps the arrogant self-will of man. The Father's sovereign will is in view. He'll be merciful to who he'll be merciful to. He'll have compassion on whom he desires to have compassion on. That trumps the arrogant self-will of man. On the board, God is in control. Man does not control his destiny. God does. Man may suppose that he is saved, but unless God saves him, he's never saved. Allah Matthew 7, 20-23. Man cannot control God with his own will, or whimsical suppositions about God's desire to save. God has a definite wrath reserved for those who suppose such things. Turn again to Romans 9, verse 10. Think about how presumptive we can be as members of the human race. Think about how we can suppose certain things 
even put certain things on God that are not biblical, but it, it caters to our flesh and makes us comfortable or gives us a little peace, a little power in the equation. But there's nothing more arrogant than that. Romans 9.10 And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Wow. Wow. That's a bold statement. That should wake anybody up who's sleeping spiritually, if they read it or if they're open to listening. Verse 16 again. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? By the way, is a lump of clay alive or dead? Doesn't have one little ounce of life in it, does it? Totally in the hands of the potter. And so are we, right? Dead in our trespasses and sins. So it totally depends on God's mercy. And that, that should make us just cry out all the more, right? God be merciful to me, the sinner. If it totally relies on your mercy, I better get down on my knees because there's clearly no other way, and it's totally up to him. Romans 9.22 What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Again on the board, God is in control. Man shouldn't get presumptive with God. As soon as man assumes control, he ejects himself from God's gracious plan for him. He's like, I'll do it my way. I'll get in with God my way, or so he thinks. We even see in the word, even though a man is called to have faith, his being born again is never from his own will, but from the will of God. 
We're talking, again, supernatural workings here, which cannot be mechanically figured out and explained by man. But the fact is that God is sovereign, and without his power, man goes literally nowhere. Again, look at Romans 9.16. Romans 9.16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And this passage reminded me of another passage which comments on man's will versus God's will. Turn to John 1 verse 9. The Gospel of John 1 verse 9. Man loves to think he has some control in the equation. John 1 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we see in verse 12, there is an issue of faith here, and man has some free will in this decision to believe. But who is this man born of? Did it come from his own will in verse 13? Did he will it to happen, so to speak? Or was he born of God? In other words, nobody causes his own birth. We don't... (laughs) DJ, you like that one, huh? It's a good statement, right? (laughs) <laughs> I was reading something from MacArthur on that, and that was a statement he just you know, put out there to think about. It says we're born again, right? Nobody causes his own birth. Nobody causes his own physical birth. And so nobody causes his own spiritual birth, as we just see in verse 13. It is wholly dependent upon the mercy and power of our sovereign God and creator. Man doesn't want to hear that but it's wholly dependent upon the mercy and power of God. Your salvation, my salvation, anybody's salvation. So what's the only alternative now? Get on your knees and cry out as a sinner for mercy. And God, to the one who cries out, he delivers them. Don't ask ask me to explain it because it's a kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? How does that work? No idea. But we do know that it's totally dependent on God's mercy who's born again and saved and who's not. And as soon as man assumes control, he ejects himself from God's gracious plan for him. Because if he assumes control, he's arrogant. He wants a peace and salvation. He literally turns away from God's grace while he might even be claiming God's grace in that moment because of the boastful pride. So as we begin to close here, let's go to a sister passage of Mark chapter 8 
Don't go to Mark 8. But this is a sister passage. There are three passages in the gospel that give us the same passage that we've been dealing with. Uh, turn to Matthew 16, 24. Matthew 16, 24. This is a difficult passage for some people to swallow because they're stuck in easy believism. They can't account it towards the gospel. They won't account it towards the gospel. Maybe out of arrogance, I don't know. It's to each person's own heart, but they won't account it towards the gospel. I want to share something with you that will also help you defend the words of Jesus and his gospel here. Matthew 16, 24. First of all, how does it start? Then Jesus said to his disciples. Do you remember what we just learned from John chapter 6, the end of John chapter 6? You should all remember the end of John chapter 6, where it says his disciples, some of them weren't even believers, and they walked away. So anytime you see the word disciples does not mean it's written to believers only, which, by the way, some people use that argument to say that this passage is not about salvation. But it clearly is for more than one reason. So Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? How can you say this is not about salvation? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. It's so sad, but Jesus' own words are offensive today to the average Christian gospel. Because, very simply, it's been watered down gradually over the last hundred years or so. Just think about that for a minute. Step back and look at the big picture. We're so caught up in our own lives, and we're not, you know, most of us don't live a hundred years, so we don't think about what happened a hundred years ago, 80 years ago, 60 years ago, in this country, in the push of Christianity, what was, what was uh, distracting Christianity from sticking with the word and sticking to Jesus' words. We don't think about these things. But gradually over time, the gospel got watered down away from Jesus' own words. It was so subtly and gradually done, in the name of grace, by the way, that Christian churches today don't even see what was done to it. And as Pastor said on Sunday, Satan has devised an alternative to adhering to Jesus' words in the Holy Bible. He's devised an alternative. What's the alternative? Could be several things. Just explain it away somehow. Maybe this passage is only for believers. Look, it says his disciples. Right? That can't be about the gospel. Maybe it's not for us today. We're in a different dispensation. All these things that Satan has snuck into the churches with to put Jesus' words on the shelf instead of in the front. It's absolutely astonishing. But how does Satan do these things? Gradually, over time, subtly, sneakily, patiently, as patient as he can be. 
Just ignore this passage in Matthew 16. Just go to Romans and Ephesians and stay there. That's another excuse. How do we take the Lord's words out of the gospel when He is the gospel? That's been the message. As came out on Sunday, all the while Satan proposes that since there's fewer stumbling blocks, that the pathway to salvation is made easier based on a perverted, non-biblical theory that grace is whatever makes salvation easy for man. Isn't that the trend in the churches today? Isn't that the common theme that if it's easier, it's even more gracious? Meanwhile, taking out what the Bible says about what true faith looks like, for example, taking out the heart and the fact that God looks at the heart, removing the words of Jesus himself, the author of salvation. So this is something for all of us to really consider and to pray about. Like, literally, I mean in your own prayer life, to pray for spiritual insight on this. To pray to see the big picture and what's going on in the churches. Because by understanding this, number one, we're going to make be more solid in the truth and be set free by the truth because we're sticking to the truth. Number two, we're going to be able to help people that are going to be put in our periphery, that are stuck in this way, that have accepted a watered-down gospel and thinking grace means whatever's easiest, which that's not what grace means. Grace means there's one way, and it is by mercy, but there's one way, and it's a narrow path. But there's a way, and it's pure, and it's true. No, I want the way to be nice and wide, because that's more gracious. Is it? Or is it a lie? Is it accepting arrogance into the equation, man's own arrogance into the equation? Satan's subtle workings over many years in the churches have watered down the gospel and, in effect, discounted our Lord's own words, which is just astonishing. But see, we can look at it now, at least where we are at the point in history, right? We can look at it, look back 100 years and say, this is where it's coming, this is where we are now. While people were getting there over the last 100 years, they didn't see it because they were in the midst of it. And thank God the Spirit is opening our eyes to the travesty that is taking the Lord's words out of the gospel. It's just crazy. We all need to pray (laughs) for our own clarity, for our own wisdom, and um, uh, not being deceived, right, by sin, but also for the churches. Ask God to show you, to reveal to you personally Satan's subtle workings, both with the gospel and in your own soul, so that we're not victims of his deceptions. On the board, we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians 11.3 in the English Standard Version. But I am afraid that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that's his craftiness in some translations. That's his subtleties. This is what the Spirit is warning us against. Like, pay attention. Pray. 
Be in the Word at all times. Submit. Be humble so I can show you the light, so I can lead you out of the darkness you're in, whatever darkness that is. Submit. Be humble. Because only that way are you going to see the light. Are you going to see the way out and avoid his cunning trickery that tries to enslave us and put us in chains. Amen? All right, let's close. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word and your grace toward us. Uh, it's overwhelming. We thank you for giving us the truth that sets us free. And Father, also for humbling us and getting us out of the way so that we don't have some boasting in your grace plan. Father, we ask that you help us all pray on this and enlighten our individual souls so that we see the subtleties of Satan, his trickery, his craftiness and deceitful scheming. And Father, help us see the big picture and help us have more of a heart for the lost, even in the churches, so they can come to know you as the way and the truth and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.